Before we begin, let's get one thing out of the way. I'm a stripper at Bear Assets Exotic Cabaret. An exotic dancer, if you think that sounds classier. Me? I don't care. It's what I do, not who I am. My stage name is Sherbert, in honor of my great-uncle Herbert, who died last year. I know, it's a weird way to commemorate someone, but whatever. I needed a name. Now, I know what some of you must be thinking. No, I'm not damaged goods, my daddy loved me just fine, and I'm not some destitute heroin addict selling myself to get a fix. It's nothing like that. Like a lot of my fellow strippers, I'm a student. This job pays decent enough, and the work hours are great and don't interfere with classes. But the story isn't about my career path. It's a story about a door. A door mostly out of sight of the main area, but visible from up on the stage. A door that, as far as I could tell, only opened when patrons dropped obscenely large stacks of money. A door to a room so private that none of the other girls I asked knew what was on the other side. Yesterday I went through that door. And this is what I saw. As you probably already guessed, the turnover rate at a strip club is pretty high. Sure, there are a few regulars who stick around for a couple of years, but those girls are the exceptions. It wasn't uncommon for me to show up to my shifts, only to find one of the girls missing. I'd ask, where's Candy? And someone would reply, found herself a sugar daddy. Sometimes it'd be something a little more disgusting, like last week when I asked, hey, where's Sherry? And Ginger replied, boss found out she's only 16. She got the can. 16 years young. Can you imagine resorting to stripping at that age? It's terrible. Thankfully, the boss was vigilant and always managed to catch the underage ones within a few weeks. You know, before too much damage was done. He was a nice enough guy, but he had the worst fashion sense. He'd wear these Bermuda shorts with an unbuttoned Hawaiian shirt, showing off his curly mane of chest hair and this gaudy gold medallion with a red gemstone dangling from his beefy neck. He loved that damn medallion so much, he had an identical one on a bust in his office. In case the first one got dirty, I guess? He was mostly normal, if not a little shady looking in the way that all strip club owners look. Most importantly though, he treated us with respect. At worst, he'd playfully slap one of us on the butt, but aside from that, he was very hands-off the merchandise. Yesterday, the boss asked me to train Sherry's replacement. I arrived at work about a half an hour early to pick out props and stuff, but got distracted by that damn door. For the first time since I started working at Bear Assets, it was left unattended. I know I shouldn't have, but I let my curiosity get the better of me. I walked over and boldly tried the handle. To my surprise, it was unlocked. I quickly glanced around the room to make sure I was still alone before opening the door and stepping inside. Inside was a miniature version of our main stage, facing two rows of leather recliners, each with their very own tray table. The walls were lined floor to ceiling with silky red curtains that curved in the corners. In the back was a small bar with bottles filled to the brim and crystal glasses more polished than I'd ever seen at any strip club. Clearly, this was some sort of VIP lounge. I circled around the room, wondering why I'd never been invited to dance here before. 
Hell, wondering how many girls had lied to my face about getting the opportunity. I was actually a little angry and jealous about it, to be honest. I was about to head back when I noticed one little detail that didn't quite make sense. The stage fed directly into a black concrete wall instead of curtains to conceal the backstage area. As far as I could tell, there was only one door in the room, and I'd never seen any of the girls going through it, so I couldn't help but wonder how they got inside for their private shows. It had to be one of the red curtains, I figured. There must have been a door hidden behind one of them. If I slipped behind the curtains and circled around the room, I could find the entrance and figure out who'd been lying to me. That's exactly what I did, but it didn't quite go according to plan. See, I was about three-fourths of the way across the room with nothing but concrete walls to show for my trouble when I heard the doorknob turn. Afraid of getting in trouble, I bolted towards the corner, hoping to hide myself in the gap between the connected walls and the curved curtains. There was just enough space for me, and since I was standing right where two curtains connected, I was able to see the backs of the sofas and the stage from where I was. The boss walked inside, fanning a wad of $100 bills as he escorted a somewhat young businessman to the front row. Let's make your first time special, he said. The lights in the room dimmed. I couldn't see it, but I could hear the slimy smile on my boss's face as he continued. Would you like your very own cherry to pop? I have a new one, ripe and ready for the picking. Oh, disgusting. We all knew those things happened behind closed doors, but up until that point, I've been able to maintain the false belief that we didn't resort to that kind of business at Bear Assets. The businessman nodded. Excellent, let's begin, answered the boss as he clapped his hands together. Music started playing loudly in the room. The walls must have been remarkably soundproof, because I'd never heard it bleeding into the main part of the strip club. My eyes scanned the curtains, waiting to see movement so I could see which of my colleagues was good enough for the VIP room, which one was better than me. There was no way I could have anticipated what was about to happen. The curtains didn't move. Someone walked on stage, seemingly stepping right through the concrete wall. She was naked, her slender body hunched over protectively, her arms crossed over her midsection with her hands landing near the opposite shoulders. She was shaking, sobbing. She was translucent. I couldn't really tell just how translucent she was until she reached about halfway at the stage because the black wall behind her had added an illusion of pigment to her form, like looking at water through a colored glass, or the opposite. But as she moved closer to the pole, I could see the folds in the red curtain behind her, showing through her body. Her entire body looked like it had been washed in an old-timey sepia tone, her hair and skin all a similar burnt brown color. She stopped at the pole and continued to sob. What the hell was I seeing? The boss grunted angrily. 
Don't be shy. Show him your true colors. He paid good money for this. She whimpered quietly, holding herself tighter. She was shaking her head, mouthing the words, Please, no. The boss stood up and walked over the stage, placing a hand on the medallion. I'm giving you one chance. You've seen what'll happen if you don't do what I say. She flinched. The businessman leaned forward on his seat and cupped his hand to his chin, watching with perverted interest. The boss lost his patience, and the surreal show became even more surreal. He grabbed his stupid gaudy medallion and jerked it once. It was a sound like static, followed by what looked like a bolt of red lightning shooting out of him and whipping against the translucent being. She screamed in agony and fell to her knees, balling herself up in the fetal position. Show us your true colors, whispered the boss in a terrifyingly stern and slow tone of voice. The ripple of static came back, but this time the girl obeyed. She slowly sat up, her arms releasing her chest and defeat. I had a feeling no one was looking at her breasts, though. There was no reason to stare at her tits when something more magnificent was hidden inside. I don't know how to explain it. It was this... this this vessel of light right in the middle of her chest, like she'd swallowed a neon tube or something. It was the purest, lightest blue I'd ever seen in my life. Tendrils of light flickered around it like a fire. It was beautiful. It was hypnotic. It was like... It was like looking right into her soul. I felt an overwhelming feeling of contentment washing over me, like being in my mother's arms. And then I recognized her face. Sherry. My stomach dropped, yet I couldn't shake the warmth and joy I was experiencing. It was like there were two versions of me in my head. One that was mesmerized, and another who was horrified. Dance, said the boss. Whimpering, Sherry stood up and began to dance on stage, burying it all. She had no clothes to hide, no mask, no makeup to wear, no skin to hide behind. She'd been stripped in the ultimate sense of the word. I was seeing her very essence, her soul, forced to parade around like a slave for the amusement of some sick son of a bitch. The song came to an end, and when it did, I noticed her beautiful blue light growing just a tad bit duller. The boss waved his hand over his medallion, and Sherry disappeared. The room fell cold. So, what'd you think? he asked. The businessman applauded enthusiastically. (laughs) Amazing! I can see why you come so highly recommended. The boss ran a hand over his bald head. And think, she's new. Wait until you get a load of one with a bit of experience. The hands-on ones? Ooh, there's something all right. Perhaps next time you find yourself with a bit of pocket change. I'll pay you right now, 
interrupted the businessman. Right now, double what I paid to get in here. Show me another. I, I want the full package. The boss laughed triumphantly. <laughs> You're about to get the best lap dance of your life, my friend. He waved his hand over the medallion. This time, three women appeared on stage. I recognized two. I thought one had graduated and moved away, and I'd been told that the other had gotten married to some rich guy. Lies. They were all lies. Their body language seemed a little insecure, but they were exposed. They both had colors inside, just like Sherry. One was a beautiful dark green, and the other was burgundy. I still got a flush of contentment from looking at them, but it was nowhere near as exhilarating as when I looked into Sherry's color vessel. The third dancer, the one I didn't recognize, had gray on the inside. Out of the three, she seemed to be the least bothered by her predicament. She had her legs spread out, her shoulders leaned back, her arms loose at her sides, and the dull light between her breasts exposed for the world to see. The new song started dancing, and the trio began to dance like it was going out of style. Damned if I know how they managed to touch the pole, yet walk through walls, but somehow they managed. They'd slid up and down, twirled around. I could feel myself getting lost in the movements, eyes transfixed on the three lights. Might even been a little aroused, to be honest. I'm not even into women, I just... There was something in the air. My breaths were shallow and my heart was thrashing. I wanted them. I wanted them so bad. Gray jumped off the stage and began grinding against the businessman without a speck of hesitation. Let's be clear here. I'm not slut-shaming the ghostly stripper. It's just that all the others seemed to be more guarded, but she had absolutely no restraint whatsoever. I wondered why she was so different. She groped her body and presented every piece of it to him. His hands hovered over her translucent flesh, tentatively, the only thing stopping him likely being years of having to obey the no-touching rule. Do it. Reach inside, whispered the boss. The man seemed hesitant for a moment, but then Gray tossed a leg over his lap and began to gyrate her hips seductively. He plunged his hand into her chest and touched the dull light swirling inside. His body arced back as he let out a groan of ecstasy. I could only imagine what it must have felt like, holding on to the very core of someone in his hands. I pushed my back against the wall, trying to imagine myself doing the same, trying to experience the rush vicariously through him. I could feel the pressure building inside. Building. Building. I needed release. I needed... The room became cold as an explosion of frigid air swept out of gray like a full-body sneeze. Green and burgundy disappeared. The light in gray's chest suddenly became black. Instead of flames flickering around it, it now seemed to ooze darkness like the overflowing tip of an inking pen. Her eyes became hollow, her hair unkempt, and her body seemed to deflate and sharpen as though her invisible skin and muscles had turned to a thin cloth draped over her bones. 
She let out an ear-piercing shriek as she lunged toward the businessman's neck, fanged mouth ready to bite down into his skin. The boss clutched his medallion in one hand and snapped his fingers with the other. Red light came pouring out of the gray woman, but not the same kind of light. It was like she was burning from the inside out. It only took a split second for her body to disintegrate into ashes. The boss chuckled. (laughs) Sorry about that. I was sure we'd get at least one more week out of her. The businessman jumped to his feet, eyes wide with terror. I, 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 he stuttered. (laughs) I assure you, you are in no danger. Here, why don't I summon up a new... Started the boss, but he was quickly interrupted. No, no. No more. I'm... No. He jumped to his feet and ran out the door without another word. The boss let out a disapproving grunt. (sighs) This is your fault. I had no idea who he was talking to until he turned and looked straight at me. I could feel myself becoming numb. I hadn't noticed the gust of wind had blown half the curtain off of me. I hadn't realized I was standing in plain sight now. He continued. I suppose it's fortunate you're here. I just so happen to need a replacement. Let's see what your true colors are. He ran toward me. I was literally cornered. There was nothing I could do, nowhere I could run. I tried, of course. I barely had time to make a step to the right before he was on me. His meaty fingers squeezed my throat so hard I thought my head might pop off. I tried to fight him off, slapping him and clawing at his arms, but he was bigger and stronger than me. In the one-sided tussle, I noticed that damn tacky medallion swinging from his neck. I grabbed the chain and twisted it in one quick jerky motion, hoping I could counter-choke him. Instead of tightening around his neck, the chain broke off surprisingly easy, and my arm whipped back violently, sending the medallion crashing against the wall. I heard a crackle as the gemstone broke. I was quickly running out of air. My vision was starting to blur. I thought I was going to die. And then I saw a light. Not the light at the end of the tunnel, a soft pink light. A light that filled me with a sense of security. And then a pale blue one. Purple. Green. Yellow. More and more lights blinked into existence until we were surrounded by at least a dozen of them, all encased in silhouettes of busty dancers. They grabbed the boss's fingers and began prying them away from my throat. I fell to the ground and gasped for air as they pulled him away from me. Gagging and coughing, I crawled to the bar and grabbed the first bottle I laid my hands on. I found the strength to force myself to my feet and staggered to the boss, now being held down on his knees by the spectral dancers. He would never do this to anyone else. I was going to make sure of it. I'm not a violent person. I wouldn't hurt a soul. It's a good thing he didn't have one. He was a monster. 
I swung the bottle at his face with all my might. Surprisingly, it didn't break like you see in the movies. The boss screamed profanities at me as blood began to ooze out of his nose. He kept trying to break free, but with a dozen of his victims pinning him down, he wasn't going anywhere. He deserved every bludgeoning strike to the head. He deserved the bruises and the swelling. He deserved the humiliation. I kept at it until he stopped moving. Once I thought he was dead, or at least unconscious, I dropped the bloody bottle and backed to the curtains. It was over. Or so I thought. The girls might have saved me, but they didn't do it entirely for altruistic purposes. I found out that when they dragged him onto the stage and started tearing away his clothes, exposing his disgusting, blubbery body. I remember thinking it was going to be hard to explain this to police. Turns out by the time they were done with him, I wouldn't have to. You see, once his clothes were off, they continued. They started peeling away his skin like a used band-aid. The strips of flesh burned away as soon as they were pulled, and in their place, I could see the same brownish, translucent skin. Part of me was disappointed that he was too dead to feel the pain, but I wasn't disappointed for too long. As soon as they pulled a strip of flesh away from his mouth, I saw the astral version of his mouth open wide. He was screaming, a silent scream of agony. I was more like it. He was aware of what was happening to him. He could feel every little tug. Good. They stripped away the flesh from his chest, revealing a disgusting brown nugget where his color should have been. It barely had any light to it. It just looked like digested filth. The girl kept his arms for the last and as I watched him expose the most private parts of him, I wondered why. It was so he couldn't cover up. It was to make sure he'd feel the humiliation of everyone seeing his true colors, his disgusted innards. As soon as his arms were free of his real skin, he covered up and started sobbing like a giant bald baby. Now the girls were vindicated. They slowly backed away, and one by one, the lights went out and they disappeared. I'd like to think that they moved on to a better place. At the very least, their torment was over. As for the boss, I remembered the extra medallion he kept in his office. I wasn't exactly sure how to use it, but after waving it around him a few times, his silhouette disappeared, so I think I managed to trap him inside the same way he trapped the girls. I kept his gaudy medallion. I'd like to say I did it to make sure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands, but... I'm not gonna lie. A part of me really needs to see those true colors again. We all thought it was the flu. The symptoms matched. Fever, headache, chill, sore throat. My roommate Abigail was the first to get it. 
She was laid out in her room, coughing miserably into her blankets when I left for work that morning. The morning that everything changed. She'd already been sick for three days at that point, and didn't seem to be getting any better. That morning, before I left, I suggested she see a doctor, but she waved me off. I'll be fine, she said, her voice so scratchy it was painful to listen to. This is what I get for making out with a stranger at the bar. Well, I hope you've learned your lesson, I teased. I wouldn't bet on it, she said before turning over and burrowing her face into the pillow. I made a mental note to grab some more pain meds before I left for work, crossing my fingers and hoping that she didn't infect me too. I didn't hear from her all day at work though I thought of her from time to time as I heard my co-workers coughing and sniffling. Jeez, everyone's getting sick. Isn't it a little early for flu season? I spent the rest of that day clutching my hand sanitizer and glaring suspiciously at anyone who got too close. I was looking forward to locking myself in my room when I got home and trying to shower all the germs off of me. Unfortunately, those plans went down the tubes the second I opened the door to my apartment. Abigail was sitting on the floor in the middle of the living room, hyperventilating and clutching her chest. Abigail! I shouted, dropping my purse and running to her side. Rachel! She croaked, collapsing into a coughing fit as I knelt next to her. What is it? What's wrong? I asked. She looked pain, and her hand was fisting in her shirt just above her heart. Oh my god, she's having a heart attack, I thought, fumbling for my phone to call an ambulance. I saw... I saw something, Rachel. I... She struggled to bring her breathing under control as she leaned back against the coffee table. What did you see? I asked. I saw my dad. He was... He was coming down the stairs and he tripped and fell. He was bleeding and... And he... She got herself off to take a few deep, rattling breaths. I I don't understand, I said. You had a nightmare? She shook her head. No. It wasn't a nightmare. I wasn't asleep. I was just... Sitting there, and then I could see it clear as day. Like, I was there, and it was really happening. I swear to God, I'm not making this up. It took about ten more minutes for her to calm down. Finally, I got her sitting on the couch, drinking a cup of tea, and explaining her vision to me once again. And you're absolutely sure it wasn't a nightmare. She sighed, running her fingers through her hair. I don't know. I mean, I'm certain I wasn't asleep, but I've had a fever all day. Maybe it was just a hallucination or something. It felt so real. Maybe you should lay down, I suggested. Take some meds. Try to get some rest. I'm sure you'll feel better. I ended up setting up the couch so she could sleep in the living room. That way, if she had another episode, I'd hopefully be able to find her and intervene before it became a full-blown panic attack. Thankfully, she slept most of the afternoon and night. I was ready to run off the whole incident as a 
strange effect of the fever right up until her mother called the next morning. I was sitting at the kitchen table eating breakfast when Abigail walked into the room, white as a sheet, clutching her phone so hard her hand was shaking. Rachel, there was an accident this morning. My dad, is he okay? I asked, alarmed. He's fine, but... Rachel, he... He fell down the stairs. I didn't want to believe it. I wanted to pretend that it was a freaky coincidence or something, but after Abigail, reports started pouring in from around our city. People seeing things that hadn't happened yet. One woman saw a ring on her finger. 48 hours later, her boyfriend proposed with the same ring in her vision. One woman found out she was pregnant three days before the test came out positive. The local news started reporting these stories with a baffled tone. It was weird to be sure. Not only were people confused as to why it was happening, but it also seemed localized to our small city which just left people even more bewildered. But it was amazing, too. All of a sudden, people could see the future, at least until the virus cleared up. As soon as a person recovered, the visions seemed to stop. Some people had one vision, others had several. There were some, too, who didn't see anything. As time went on, we were left with more questions rather than fewer. Most of the visions seemed to become reality within a few days, at least at first, but soon, people were reporting visions that took place years into the future. They could see themselves decades older than they were now, surrounded by people they didn't know, seeing things they didn't quite understand. That led to the second and perhaps most important question. Could the future be changed? At first, the answer seemed to be no, and that made people uneasy. One man saw a vision of his child being attacked on her way home from school. He did everything he could to stop it, picking her up every day at the gate, making sure she knew to stay away from strangers. But one day, he was stuck in traffic and late picking her up. She decided to take her chances walking home, and you can probably guess what happened next. He told the local news, trying to impress upon people no matter what you try to do. These things will happen. But that was just the one incident. It wasn't enough to claim that all the visions would certainly come to pass. But then one incident became two, and then three, and then four. And suddenly, people weren't so excited about the visions anymore. The news started running debates about whether or not the future could or should be changed. Perhaps changing the future was akin to playing God and would only result in disaster. Perhaps the future could only be changed given enough time. The more immediate visions were already set in stone, but something years in the future could still be changed. Right? Or was that just wishful thinking? 
It was amidst these debates and arguments and fights that I, too, became sick. It happened four days after the fever showed up. I had taken a week off from work at the first sign of a cough and had holed myself up in my room. Abigail had gone to visit her parents, not wanting to risk getting sick again. It wasn't yet clear exactly what this illness was, how it spread, or if there were multiple strains. Everyone was being extremely cautious, except for the people who truly wanted a vision. And at this point, they were in the minority. As for me, I would have been happy with not knowing anything about the future. As my illness progressed, I kept hoping and praying that I would be one of the lucky people who didn't exhibit that specific symptom. That day I was sitting in my room watching Netflix when my field of vision began to shift. Everything seemed to slide to the left and then suddenly I wasn't in my apartment anymore. I was in a different house, in a bathroom, watching a woman rock her baby back and forth, back and forth. It took me a moment to recognize her as Abigail. She was clearly older, by at least ten years. She was smiling down at the squirming, crying baby in her arms. As I watched, she sat down by the bathtub and filled it with water. There was something about the way she was smiling at the baby that made me feel uneasy. Like something wasn't quite right. Why am I seeing this? I wondered. As soon as the bathtub was full, Abigail pressed a kiss to her baby's forehead. And then she dropped it into the tub. She stared down at it, thrashing in the water, that smile still stuck on her face. After a moment or two, she stood up and left. She didn't even watch her baby die. I lurched forward, my arms outstretched, reaching desperately for the child. It had stopped moving under the water, but I was sure if I could just get it out. I came to on my bedroom floor, my arms outstretched, my breathing ragged and unsteady. Even though the baby was gone, I could see it clear as day, struggling in its swaddling, its mouth gasping for air that would never come. The next week was hell for me. Abigail came back from her parents and asked me what I'd seen. I couldn't think of a way to tell her. I could barely stand to look at her, if I'm being honest. Even though she hadn't done it yet, hell, she hadn't even had a baby yet. I couldn't stop seeing her as the worst kind of murderer. The news didn't help any. All day long on the radio and on the TV, I'd hear a plethora of stories about doomed attempts to stave off the future. As time went on, I could feel the conclusion forming in my own mind. The future is set in stone, and there's nothing that can be done to change it. Abigail was going to become a mother. She was going to kill her own child. I could try to warn her, try to warn her own family, but at the end of the day, 
It would all be for nothing. The way I saw it, there was only one thing I could do to stop it from happening. One night while Abigail was sleeping, I crept into her room. She was a heavy sleeper, so she didn't wake up. Not even when I rolled her on her back and took one of the pillows from her bed. It's a lot harder to smother someone than it seems. It's not like in the movies where they stop struggling after a few seconds. I had to hold her there for several long, painful minutes until I was absolutely certain she was no longer breathing. After that, I went back to bed and cried myself to sleep. I called the police the next morning, pretending that I had discovered her body. I even gave her CPR just to make it more believable. I didn't think that would fool them for long. I was sure they discovered what had happened during the autopsy. I should have just come out and told them what I'd done, but I didn't because I'm a coward. I couldn't make myself say the words, so instead I lived on borrowed time. I went to the hospital with the ambulance. A hollow, sick feeling in my stomach the entire time. I sat in the waiting room because I simply didn't know what else to do. I decided to wait there until the police came to ask me questions. They'd certainly want to hear what happened in my own words. I just had to decide whether or not I wanted to lie. As I was sitting in that waiting room, my own future looming dark and heavy before me, Abigail's family arrived. It shouldn't have surprised me. Of course they would have been called. Of course they'd come to see as soon as they heard the news. I was able to recognize her father and her mother when they walked through the doors. I'd seen them in pictures on her nightstand before. It was who they brought with them that made my blood run cold. It was Abigail but not the Abigail who was lying dead in the other room. This Abigail was older. She looked exhausted and tired. And she was carrying a baby. I stumbled to my feet, the blood draining from my face. Who? Who are you? Whispered, my voice hoarse, my heart pounding. Abigail's mother came to me, tears in her eyes. I'm sorry, Rachel. We came as soon as we heard, she said, pulling me in a hug as I stared at the other Abigail. Oh, I suppose you haven't met Tony yet. She's our other daughter. Other Abigail came forward, bouncing the baby in her arms. I'd seen that baby before, and I'd made a terrible, terrible mistake. My sister is dying. It's a rare disorder that affects the brain and the nervous system. 
And while she was pretty healthy looking just six months ago, she now has blackouts and vomiting at least twice a week. She looks old and weak instead of the strong 20-year-old she was and should be. They tell her she likely won't be able to walk within the next year or two. After that, she'll lose the ability to pick up objects or talk. By the time she's 25, she'll be in a nursing home, being fed through a tube because she can't swallow. And then one day, she'll just forget how to breathe. If she's lucky, she'd be gone before they realize it and are able to keep her traitor body alive. But as you can probably tell, my sister isn't very lucky at all. So I've promised her that if and when the time comes, I'll help her end it. The idea of that terrifies and sickens me, but I tell myself I can do it. Can do it for her, no matter what it costs me in the process. Still, I'd rather not have to test myself like that. And I'd rather not risk losing my sister at all. That's why tonight we're breaking into an old woman's house at the edge of town. I was already looking into non-traditional remedies before Melissa asked me to help her end it if the time came and she couldn't go on. Her asking just made me more determined to find something to fix my sister, even if it went beyond what normal medicine could provide. In the past three months, we've tried herbs, yoga, crystals, shamans, and faith healers. Yet, as of last week, the doctors are saying the disease slow crawl up her spine and across her brain is speeding up, not slowing down. The next day, Melissa surprised me with tickets to Japan next month. The trip must have eaten all of her savings, but... I didn't have the heart to protest when she told me about it. We'd always wanted to go, after all. And my sister knew her time was running out. That's when I got desperate. Back three years ago, me and Melissa went to a grief counseling group in therapy for a while when our mom died. Just a bunch of sad, lonely people talking to each other, either unable or unwilling to share their pain with the people in their lives. She stopped going after a few weeks, but I went for over six months. And when we got Melissa's diagnosis four months ago, I started going again. I didn't tell my sister about it, and at first I wasn't sure why I went. Most of the people were different than before, and the few I recognized probably just assumed I was still having trouble with losing my mom. It wasn't until one night after we'd been to the last of an exhaustive list of non-traditional practitioners that the dam broke and I started sobbing to strangers about how my sister was going to wither away and die and I was going to be left alone. They did what they were supposed to do, of course. Listen without arguments. Comfort without deeply caring. Which let me be hurt without worrying about hurting them in turn. Walking to my car afterward, I felt drained and exhausted, but lighter, too. As though that group of bruised, kind-hearted strangers had eaten my pain, at least for the moment, because I knew it wouldn't last. 
But if I even got a couple of days of not driving myself crazy about it, it would... Sorry for your troubles, miss. I jumped slightly at the voice coming from the dark to my right. Turning to look, I saw an orange ember grow brightly in the shadow of the old church where we held the meetings. As it dimmed, a curl of gray smoke billowed out toward me. I'm sorry? The ember circled through the air briefly as part of some unseen gesture. Your troubles. Your sister. Her on the road to dying and all that. I felt a familiar weight settling back onto my chest. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. I turned to walk onto my car when he spoke again. His voice was older and rich with the hint of some accent I couldn't place. I also couldn't remember who he was in the group from the sound of it. I can help you with that, you know. If you're looking for help, that is. I felt irritation and confusion at his words. But worse than that, the brightly colored serpent of hope that was already curling around to constrict my heart. Help? Help how? A thought struck me. Look, I'm not looking for drugs or something. The man stepped forward out of the shadows with a smile across his face. I still didn't recognize him, but the meeting had over 30 people tonight, and I wasn't really looking at most of them that much. Besides, everything about him was very forgettable. Bland shirt and pants, average height, boring face. In fact, the only thing at all interesting about him were his voice and the words he was saying. Oh, oh no, I'm not a pusher. What I offer is a chance to help your sister. Not just help her, to cure her. My heart fluttered as I felt my fists clench in my sides. What are you talking about? He glanced in the direction of the church door that people were still drifting out of. If we can talk more privately? I frowned at him. There was no way I was going somewhere alone with him, and whatever he was selling I was sure it was a scam. Still, I couldn't just throw away a chance, however slim, without hearing him out, could I? And if we just walked over a few feet to my car, I could always yell for help if he tried anything. Nodding slightly, I turned and walked toward my car, and when I looked back, he was following. When I reached the door, I held up my hand to stop him from getting closer. That's good. No offense, but I don't know you. His grin widened, and he nodded. A reasonable request. Glancing back in the direction of the other people, he went on in a lower voice. There is a fungus. It's very rare, but when processed properly by someone with the proper knowledge, it has great restorative effects on diseases of the nervous system. I have that knowledge, and I believe I can help your sister if I have access to a fresh supply of the fungus. Despite myself, I took an angry step forward. Look, I don't know what kind of fucking con you're trying to run here, but you'll excuse me if I don't bite. The doctors say what she has isn't curable, and some dude in a parking lot supposedly knows some magic medicine he makes with a fungus? How much are you waiting for me to- He cut me off, his face hard and serious now. 
Your sister has early onset amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, doesn't she? Also known as Lou Gehrig's disease? I stared at him. How do you know that? I didn't say what was wrong with her in there. The man sniffed. You didn't, but you did allude to several of her current and projected symptoms. Based upon everything you said, ALS seemed like the most likely candidate. And I must know, because I dedicated my life to knowing the disease that plague us and learning the best ways to fight them, so I can offer those help to those in need. Like you. My hand drifted up to my mouth as I stared at him. It was impossible, was it? Just because he knew what he was talking about, that just made him a better prepared con man, prowling the group for gullible people made desperate by their pain. A picture of Melissa, withered and dying and begging me for relief, sprang into my mind again. How much would it cost? He raised his eyebrows. Money? <laughs> Nothing like that. I just need more of the fungus. And while it is very rare, I know for a fact that it exists less than an hour's drive from here. I just need you to give me six ounces of it. <sighs> from where? Like, the woods or something? Oh, no. From a particular elderly woman's home. This is crazy. Melissa looked at me over her face mask, her eyes wide and terrified. We can't do this. I'd already heard all of her arguments and complaints before, and sitting outside 44 Bayside Drive, my own fears and worries made it hard not to bite her head off when she brought it up again. Look, you don't have to go in. You shouldn't go in. Let me do it alone. No, she hissed from behind her mask. You're not going in by yourself. And what if we get caught? If they lock me up, what does it matter? Hobby, shut up. But I'm just saying... I glared at her. No. You shut the fuck up. You're not going to die. And if someone catches us breaking into an old woman's house, it'll be because we spent so much time out here arguing about it. The guy says the fungus is growing in the living room on the floor. We just need to go in and get it. He said we won't get any resistance. No cops getting called. No risk of anyone getting hurt. Melissa frowned at me. Well, yeah, I mean, of course not. You weren't planning on hurting anyone, were you? I looked away back across the street. No, not, but... I'm not leaving without what he's asking for. I think he's the real deal. The thing we've been looking for. But... Why? Don't you think if there was some miracle cure, people would know about it? Wouldn't he be a billionaire or something instead of hanging out in, in parking lots? There was a silent accusation there. I had to tell her about sneaking back into grief counseling as part of telling her about the encounter outside, and she hadn't said anything, but I'd seen it in her eyes. A sense of betrayal. 
Not that I went back without telling her, but that I went back because of her. Because I was already mourning her. Shaking my head, I didn't look back at her. Instead, my hand drifted to the piece of paper in my pocket. Stopping myself from touching it in front of her, I gripped the door latch instead. I just believe him, okay? Now I'm going. Stay or go, it's up to you. I could hear her puff out a frustrated breath as I got out and started walking across the street. The house was set off by itself and largely isolated, with only three others even visible further down the road. And in the five minutes we'd been sitting outside, I hadn't seen a single car or person. None of that helped feeling exposed as I crossed the asphalt in the distant glow of a corner streetlight. And when I heard something coming up from behind me, I started to panic until I realized it was Melissa's panting. Shit. Slow down. I'm coming. I felt a pain in my chest as I turned and looked back to her. I'm sorry. Are you sure you're okay? I can really do it on my own. I expected her to be all ready to start arguing again, but she wasn't even looking at me. She was staring down the street with a frown. That's weird. I corked an eyebrow at her as we walked, finally making it to the edge of the house's lawn. I shoot her on the shadows at the side of the house before asking her what she was talking about. Well, you said this address is 44 Bayside, right? Yeah, so? It says 44 on the house number on the porch, and this is Bayside Drive, so what's the problem? Her brow was furrowed as she looked back, out, and at the street she shook her head slowly. I... I don't know. It's just like when we were driving in, the other numbers on the street, they were different, like 385 or something. Nothing close to 44. I shrugged. So? Sometimes street numbers are weird. She nodded, her eyes still troubled. Yeah, but... I saw the street sign, too. That street sign right there. It said Bayside Drive. I tried to keep the irritation out of my voice. Yeah? That's... Literally what I just said. Melissa glanced back at me and pointed. No, you don't get it. I looked at that sign when we were across the street in the car and it said Bayside Drive. Now it doesn't. It says Renault Street. My eyes followed her finger to the green sign perched at the corner under the street light. Even at a distance I could see she was right. It was the same sign, the same side of the sign even, but it had changed at some point when we crossed over to the house. I felt a flutter of excited dread in my belly. This was a good thing, right? It just meant that we really had found a path to a miracle. Looking back at her, I shook my head and lied. I think I saw a different sign than that. Maybe you did too. We're all freaked out and scared right now, and the sooner we get this done, the better. She started to argue further, but then nodded. 
Okay. Let's just get this over with. The front porch creaked loudly as we ascended the steps, and I half expected a light to come on before we even made it into the door. But no light or noise or other signs of life. When I reached out to the knob, it turned easy in my hands. Shit, sunglasses. I winced at the noise. But Melissa was right. We were wearing masks over our mouths and noses, but we had talked about putting on sunglasses to cover our upper face, too. Grimacing, I pulled mine out of my jacket and put them on as we slipped inside. Once the door was shut, I turned to Melissa, my voice low. You stay here and keep a lookout. The living room should be back and to the right. I pulled a freezer bag and a spoon from my jacket. I'll scrape up what we need from the floor, and then we'll go. And you're sure you don't... I'm sure. Just rest a minute and keep watch, okay? Melissa nodded silently, though I could feel her worried gaze even through her glasses. Be right back. The interior of the house was well lit as I walked quietly up the hall. I was tense for any noise or other sign of life, but there was none. At least until I turned the corner into the living room and found the old woman growing out on the floor. She lay face up, her face and body only partially visible, as though she was bobbing on the surface of some horrific lake or pool of quicksand. Between the islands of her wrist and shoulder, her breasts and knee, there were patches of rotting hardwood floor, thick with long ropes of spiky black mold. It rose in dark towers and arcs across her legs before spiderwebbing into a thinner fan across her upper body. I felt my gorge rise as I looked at her and forced myself to step forward into the room so Melissa didn't see my reaction and head that way. What was this? Was she dead? She had to be. Maybe the fungus only grew on dead bodies, but... Why was her body like that? Had she... Had she really sunk down into... No. I didn't have time for this. I had to get what I came for and get out. Thankfully for my mask, I stepped closer and bent down, avoiding looking at her closely as I took the spoon and began to dig at the corruption growing around the woman. The mold had a spongy resistance that made my head swim, but I began to pry some loose after a few attempts. Raking a chunk into the bag, I went back for more. The stuff was surprisingly heavy. Half a bag full should be more than enough. Standing up, I began sealing the bag, my thoughts already on getting out of the room and house as quickly as possible. My thumb pressed along the closing zipper as my eyes drifted over to the mantle across the room. There were knickknacks and pictures there, relics of this poor woman's life. Whatever was going on here, whatever was wrong with this woman, this house, I didn't want any part of it. Didn't want to know about it at all. And yet, I felt my eyes drawn 
along the mantle until I saw a picture I recognized. That, that's Sumiyoshi Grand Shrine in Osaka. I jumped, stifling a yelp as I turned to find the source of the hoarse whisper at my feet. It was the woman, not dead after all, staring at me with eyes. Eyes that I recognized. It... It wasn't possible. She coughed. We had a good day that day. A really good day. I looked back to the mantle and stepped closer. The picture was of me and Melissa. The same picture the man had given me that night that lay burning against my leg in my pocket. A picture that was proof of a miracle because it hadn't happened yet. My gaze swept across the other pictures along the mantle. Some were of me, some of both, me and Melissa and other people I didn't recognize. In several, we looked decades older, and I realized I didn't recognize the other people because we hadn't met them yet. I... Allie, I need... your help. I turned back, my heart bursting with fear and joy, all while being crushed by the terrible hope I held in my hands. Of course I'd help her. Somehow, as insane and miraculous as it was, this was Melissa, too. Falling to my knees, I began to nod empathetically. Yeah, oh God. Yeah, what do you need me to do? I, I need to get you a doctor, or... No. Her voice was stronger now, but I could see in her face that the exertion was costing her an energy or pain. No doctor can help. I just need you to take me out of here. Pull. Pull me free if you can. I think you're the only one that can, maybe. I froze the man's words ringing in my ears as I held the photo in one trembling hand. In it, me and Melissa were both happy and smiling as we posed in front of what looked like a Japanese shrine. I assure you it isn't a fake. I think you already know that, though. I looked past him to the last of the group trickling out of the church. I was really here. This was really happening. I turned back to him, my jaw clenched. It's impossible. We've never taken this photo. I'd remember it. He nodded a small smile playing at the corner of his mouth. You're right, of course. You would remember it, but you haven't taken it. The man chuckled softly. <laughs> but you will. The only question is that, if that will be the last good memory you have of your sister, or if there are more to follow. I'm giving you a chance at a better answer than life has provided. I could barely breathe as I looked back at us in the picture. So I just need to get that fungus from this lady's house and bring it to you? And you'll cure Melissa of that thing that's killing her? We'll have a long life together. 
You swear. Taking a step closer, he reached out and touched my hand. His fingers were cold and oily, but I didn't pull away. I swear. I'll cure her, and you'll have many good years together. As for your first question, his grip tightened on my hand. That's also correct. There are only two real rules you need to be aware of. The first is to take from the house what I request and the quantity I requested. Six ounces, remember. I looked back up at him, barely able to meet his gaze or hear his words over the pounding of my heart. What's the other rule? You take nothing else from the house other than what I request. If you violate either rule, you will not receive my help and you'll watch your sister die without any way I can help you. Allie, I can't leave this place on my own. Whatever this place is, it's feeding on me and it's always hungry. But I think I'm almost used up. I just don't want to... Did we have a good life? Melissa blinked in confusion for a moment and then nodded. Yeah. Yes, we did most of the time. I forced myself to breathe, to ask my next question. Did... Did we have a long time together? Have you been trapped here long? She closed her eyes, and despite the years and the strain weighing down on her, I could still see the weight of realization, of resignation, as it settled its smothering weight upon her chest. Just the last year or two, I think. It's eating me slow. Melissa opened her eyes. Before that, yeah. We had a long time. I nodded and started to stand up, eyes welling with tears. When I felt something tugging at the leg of my jeans, I looked down and saw that it was the three free fingers out of her right hand, desperately clawing for purchase on the denim, trying to keep me from walking away. Please, don't let me die in here. Biting my lip, I stepped back, gingerly pulling myself free of her grasp. I only met her eyes for a moment. As I breathed, I'm sorry. I turned away. Wiping my face with the back of one hand, I walked out of the room and headed back to my Melissa. I was starting to freak out. I thought I heard voices in there. I shook my head as I stepped past her and opened the front door. We're the only two people here. She followed me out onto the porch. Okay, good. Did you get it? Stuff? Closing the door tightly behind us, I nodded, not quite trusting myself to speak again yet. Well, that's good. I mean, if it works, at least. We were almost to the car when I felt something on my arm, and I barely stopped myself from screaming before realizing it was Melissa. Her eyes were large and shining. Mally, just thank you. Whether this works or not, it means so much to me that you're trying, that you never give up on me.
suppressed a shudder and nodded. Behind her, I could see the street sign. It said Bayside Drive again. Sure, uh, of course. I'd do anything not to lose you. You know that. She smiled. I know. I just... Are you okay? You seem a little weird. I started walking toward the car again and got in. Nah. I'm fine. Just lost in the thought, I guess. Melissa waited until she was in the car and could see me before asking her next question. Thinking about what? I forced a smile and managed to meet her gaze for a moment before looking away. My eyes were drawn back to the black shadow of the house across the street. About you getting well. Us being happy again. Putting the car to drive, I started down the street. When my hands began to tremble, I gripped the wheel harder and kept driving. Cool. Well, hopefully it'll work out like you think. I let out a small sound, a creaky noise somewhere between a short laugh and a low moan. <laughs> it will. You'll... You're going to be around for a long time. I promise. <laughs>